And now remain standing as I read the second half of Acts 2. We read the first half last week. We'll continue and our sermon text is at the very end of this chapter. Listen to God's word. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make full. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. 
And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in the prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to learn from your word this Lord's day. Give us ears to hear and hearts that want to do what you say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name and through your spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you're following in the outline of the sermon handout that's available to you, you should know at the outset here that we will only cover today section A. That's more than half the outline, and most of the blanks are in that section, but I included B, C, D, and E to draw your attention to other important features in the text, and we're going to come back to those at some point, probably in a couple weeks from today. We're going to come back to this text and talk about some things that we won't be able to talk about today. We'll also talk about some of these important features in our Sunday school class at 2.30. But the sermon this morning is only going to cover section A. It's going to focus mainly on verse 42. We'll look at 44 and 45 as well. And we're going to try to begin to answer the question, what does it mean to be a spirit-filled church? What does it mean to be a spirit-filled church? Christian, local congregation. Luke answers this question for us. Really, the the New Testament answers this question for us in many places. And hopefully this week and in a couple weeks and in our Sunday school time, we'll be able to flesh out what all the New Testament has to say about walking in the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit so that you can know what to say when Somebody comes up to you and says, is your church spirit-filled or are you a spirit-filled Christian? They may mean one thing, but we want to be able to say yes and mean what the Bible means when it talks about being spirit-filled. During the first 41 verses of Acts 2, Luke describes what happened 
at Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. So by this time, he had ascended into heaven. He'd been in heaven for about 10 days. So on the day of Pentecost, Jesus from heaven, the Father from heaven, they send the Holy Spirit on these roughly 120 disciples, followers of Jesus who are gathered in this house in Jerusalem, waiting for God to act, not knowing exactly what to do. And the Spirit caused these believers to speak in languages that they did not know for the purpose of proclaiming the good news, the gospel, to people who were there from other countries who spoke different languages so that they could understand what they were saying. And afterward, Peter preached a sermon about the recent death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. The people who heard these messages from from the folks speaking in tongues, and especially those who heard Peter's sermon, were cut to the heart, it says. And they asked Peter and the other disciples, what are we supposed to do? What do we do? We killed the Messiah. Peter said, verse 38, repent. Every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Put your trust in Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Put your faith in him and be baptized. When you do this, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you are baptized, you receive the spirit. The spirit is sealed upon you by God's gracious action. Verse 41 says, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3000 souls were added to them. 3000 souls were saved. 3,000 souls were added to the church. Those two things go together. Now, our sermon today focuses on verses 42 to 47. In these six verses at the end of Acts 2, Luke goes on to show the effects of Pentecost by giving us a look at the Spirit-filled church in Jerusalem. Verses 42 to 47 describe the very first New Covenant congregation. These verses provide a window into the very first church that the Holy Spirit formed during the weeks and months after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. This passage gives us a window into what it looks like to be a Spirit-filled congregation. The first thing we see in verse 42 is that a spirit-filled church is steadfast. It continues steadfast in what God is calling it to do. In other words, a spirit-filled congregation is a devoted congregation. That's what the opening line in verse 42 is saying. And they continued steadfast. Other translations say, and they devoted themselves to. What did they devote themselves to? Well, the rest of verse 42 spells out for us what a spirit-filled and spirit-led congregation devotes itself to. Number one, a spirit-filled church is devoted to the apostles' doctrine or the apostles' teaching. The word doctrine in verse 42 means teaching. The teaching of the apostles. 
is basically another way of talking about the Bible for us, especially the New Testament. Being devoted to the apostles' teaching means being devoted to the Scripture. A faithful church is one that puts a premium on truth and therefore a premium on God's Word. A Spirit-filled church believes that the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation is the only sure foundation for faith because it is the inspired, the infallible, the inerrant Word from the living God for His people. Being disciples of Jesus is one and the same with being students, diligent students of His Word. At Pentecost in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit started a new school. He began with 120 students in the house in Jerusalem. And on the first day of class, he enrolled 3,000 more students. Verse 41, being a faithful Christian means being a devoted student of the word. Remember what Jesus says in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you in all truth. That's what the spirit, the Pentecost, the spirit that God gave us Pentecost does. He leads in truth. The spirit that entered the church, the spirit in you is willing to lead you, us into all truth. But he does not do it apart from the word of God. He does not do it apart from the from the teaching of the apostles, which is grounded in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit leads you into all truth when you gather with the saints every Lord's Day and hear the Word read, preached, taught, and discussed afterward. He leads you into all truth when you read or listen to the Bible during your personal time of devotion with God, to God. Husbands and fathers, the Spirit leads you and your families into all truth when you read the Scriptures aloud in your home to your wife, to your children. A Spirit-filled church is a Scripture-filled church. A Spirit-filled family is a Scripture-filled family. A Spirit-filled believer is a Scripture-filled believer. Being led by the Holy Spirit means being led by the Holy Scriptures. If you seek to be saturated, filled with the Spirit, then you must make sure that you are saturated with the Bible. The old Puritan John Bunyan was saturated with the Bible. Bunyan lived during the 1600s. He wrote the Pilgrim's Progress, which is full of quotations and allusions to Scripture. And Charles Spurgeon said that when John Bunyan bled, he bled Bible. Listen to what Spurgeon said of Bunyan. Why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and you'll find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak 
without quoting a text. For his very soul is full of the word of God. Do you bleed Bible? To have somebody like Charles Spurgeon say this about you is something. Are we a Bible-centered and Bible-saturated congregation? I know all of us have a very high view of Scripture. Many of you can formulate it theologically, defend it from the Bible as you ought to do. Yes, we have a high view of Scripture and what it teaches. But... Does it stop there? Does it come out in practical ways? Do we love it? Do we love the Bible? Is it at the center of our fellowship together? Is it what we talk about at lunch? Do we get get together with our brothers and sisters to talk about what the Spirit is teaching us in the Word? Are you a Bible-centered and Bible-saturated believer, couple, family? Do you love Scripture? Is it more precious to you truly than gold? Is your soul full of God's Word, the way Bunyan's was? Is it what you think about when you lie down, when you get up, when you drive to work? Is it what you fill your mind and heart with the most? Do you spend as much time in your Bible as you do on Facebook? Do you know the stories of Scripture as well as you know the stories of Hollywood? Can you name as many characters in the Bible as you can actors or professional athletes? Do you look at your Bible as much as you look at your phone? Or if your Bible's on your phone, do you look at your Bible app as much as you look as your other at your other apps. Do you know the songs of Scripture as well? You know the songs of the popular culture. In short, do you love the word more than you love the world? Do you love the word more than you love the world? The way you spend your time will tell. A spirit-filled church is one that is devoted to the teaching of the apostles. The Christ-centered and Old Testament-grounded teaching of the apostles. If we want to be a church that is alive and active and fruitful in the kingdom of God, then we must be a church that soaks ourselves in the living and active word of God. Number two. A spirit-filled church is devoted to selfless, God-centered fellowship. That's the second thing that comes up in verse 42. The word fellowship is a word that we throw around and we use a lot. It's a tra- the, the, the word fellowship is the English translation of the Greek word koinonia. Many of you have heard People use that word. Koinonia comes from the word koinos, which means common. Common. Koinonia means something like common life together. The Bible is written in 
Koine Greek, which means common Greek. The fellowship, the koinonia of the saints is the common life of the saints. Christian fellowship is the shared life of the church. The shared life of the church in two senses. First, fellowship is the church's common life with God. Or we could even say in God. And this is foundational. Our fellowship together is rooted in and centered on God. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says that our fellowship, the word there is koinonia, is with the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 John 1, 3, it says that our koinonia is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This means that our koinonia, our fellowship, our communion is grounded in the Trinity, in the triune God. The communion of the saints is, first of all, communion with God, in God. You see, the most important thing that we have in common as a body, as a congregation, as the church, as saints, holy ones, is that we all share in the life of God. God has swept us up into his life, into his community. So the communion of the saints is rooted in the communion, the community of God first. So at the most basic level, koinonia is a Trinitarian experience. Think about that. It's one of the most amazing things that you could ever realize. The fellowship that God has given us, that he has invited us into, that he has brought us into is fellowship in the Trinity. It's our common share in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Experiencing biblical fellowship is experiencing God. So the first thing to say about biblical fellowship is that it's the church's common life in or with God. In and with God. Second, fellowship is the church's common life with one another. We can even say in one another as we enter into each other's lives and go deep. That's what Acts 2 focuses on. A spirit-filled church is one that is devoted to one another, the brethren. And this devotion to God leads to devotion to one another. Spirit-filled church is devoted to caring for one another and sharing with one another. Sharing burdens, sharing resources, sharing lives. A healthy church's doctrinal depth will be matched by its relational depth. It must. A spirit-filled church is one that goes deep in all directions. It goes deep in to scripture, it goes deep into the life of God. It goes deep into the lives of one another. That's what a spirit filled church looks like. When you read the last six verses of Acts 2 and really the rest of Acts, you get the impression that you couldn't keep these Christians away from each other. So all they wanted to do was be with their fellow saints. They did things together daily when they could. And the things that they did together were focused on God, on spiritual growth, 
and the things of the Lord. What we learn from this is that when the spirit is moving in a church, the people are drawn into fellowship with one another. When the spirit is moving, it moves people toward one another. A fellowship that is that is centered on God. And a fellowship that is characterized by selfless giving. That's the kind of fellowship that the Spirit moves us toward. A Spirit-filled congregation will be full of people who are constantly giving themselves away for the sake of the community. Giving their time, giving their resources, giving themselves. That's what we see in verses 44 and 45. We need to talk briefly about verses 44 and 45. They present maybe a challenge to us. They raise the question, should every spirit-filled community have everything in common? Just as the Jerusalem church did early on. Are we supposed to sell all our possessions and goods and combine everything so that we have all things in common? No, that's not what this passage is teaching or even suggesting. In fact, This misses the real application that's there, that's intended for us. It's important to remember that even the Jerusalem church at this time, they, in the sharing of their property and their possessions, it was voluntary, not mandatory. And that's first, it was voluntary, not mandatory. Second, they didn't sell and share everything. Verse 46 says that they broke bread in their homes. This means that they still owned their homes. Not everyone had sold them. Maybe some did, but not everyone. They did what was prudent for the sake of the kingdom of God. It is also noteworthy that the verbs in verse 45 are, in grammatical terms, in the imperfect Tense. This means that the selling and the dividing were ongoing and occasional. That's what it's communicating. Not once and for all, as if everyone all at once sold everything and put it into a big pot. It was ongoing. They sold things and they gave away money as needs arose. That's what the text actually says, as needs arose. So verse 45 could be translated, they were selling their possessions and goods and they were dividing them among all as anyone had need. The ASV translates it this way. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, pro- the proceeds to all as any had need. This was an ongoing and occasional process. The key phrase is as anyone had need. They shared the proceeds in order to meet particular needs that came up along the way in this very unique situation. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 provides a helpful perspective on this. Ananias and Sapphira sold some land in Acts 5, and they laid a portion of the proceeds at the apostles' feet as an offering to the church Now, their sin was not that they kept a portion of the proceeds for themselves. They could have done that. That would have been fine. Their sin was that they lied about it. They pretended to give all of the proceeds to the apostles. If they had simply told the truth about keeping a portion of the money for themselves, there would have been 
no sin. They weren't required to do this necessarily. Peter makes this clear in his response to Ananias in Acts 5, 4. He says to Ananias, while the land remained with you, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? The Jerusalem church was not communist. They did not require everyone to sell everything and to throw all the money into one pot so that everything was absolutely even. That's not the point at all. In fact, that misses the point completely. The selling and the sharing were for particular needs. And it was voluntary. At the same time, though, with that caveat, we want to make sure that we don't blunt the force of these verses, right? We don't want to just explain it away so that there's nothing for us. We don't want to to remove all the punch here. The church is called to give generously. Believers are called to give sacrificially to the poor and to to the needy. We should be giving so that it sometimes hurts. Remember what 1 John 3, 17 says, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God live in him, abide in him? One of the fathers of the early church, Chrysostom, described the Jerusalem church this way. They did not call anything of theirs their own. In this way, the root of evils was cut out. The poor man knew no shame. The rich man knew no haughtiness. But you see, there still were poor people and there still were rich people. We shouldn't avoid the real challenge of verses 44 and 45. There are many destitute Christians throughout the world. And it is part of our responsibility as spirit-filled Christians to alleviate need and to abolish destitution in the community of Jesus, starting in our own community, but also as we see needs throughout the community of Jesus throughout the world. But the church's common life with one another, the second point there, is not only about sharing possessions. That was a big part of it, especially in this situation where there were many needs. But it's mainly about sharing life. It means living together as the family of God. It means spending time together in one another's homes. It means being a family, which requires more than just doing things together on Sunday. Growing in your walk with the Lord must take place as you grow in your walk with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, we have to realize that we can't be as close with, we can't be close to every person in the same way. Even in this situation, there were 3,000 on the first day plus the 120. This was a big Jerusalem church. And so when they're meeting in homes, they're having fellowship, they all didn't know everyone the same way. And yet there was, there were these communities, these groups, these small groups, maybe we could call them, that the spirit was raising up. If 
This will only happen, though, if we are intentional about it. We have to be purposeful. And it won't happen if we are looking for the perfect family members to walk with. You aren't going to find the perfect friend here at this church. You won't find the perfect older man or older woman to mentor you. You certainly won't find the perfect pastor or the perfect set of elders. You aren't going to find the individual or the couple or the family that is exactly like you and that you just resonate with in every way. Maybe to some extent, but not perfectly. Living in community with other Christians is difficult and it takes a lot of work. It's like a marriage. It's glorious. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It ought to be. It can be. It should be. But it's never not difficult. It always takes a lot of work. You must accept this at the outset as a part of what it means to be a fellowship. A spirit-filled community is one that is committed to living with others. Warts and all. Foibles and all. Blind spots and oddities and immaturities and sins and all. A spirit-filled community is not a problem-free community. It's a community that God is bringing to maturity by means of its problems. We don't grow in grace in spite of other people's shortcomings so much as we grow in grace by means of them. Your rough edges give me an opportunity to love you the way God loves you. My rough edges give you an opportunity to love me the way God loves me. God loves people in spite of how rude or annoying they can be. We can be. He is slow to anger with people who are infuriating. He doesn't demand perfection before he will walk alongside you and me. He delights in people that we would say are not very delightful. He doesn't avoid us because we talk too much or because we are needy. He isn't embarrassed because we are socially awkward. Biblical fellowship is loving people the way God loves people. When that happens, the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit flourish. The communion of the saints assumes and includes and incorporates from the beginning the rough and the tumble of community life. Life with fellow humans. Biblical koinonia is not utopia. It's not a vision of utopia. It's a vision of a redeemed community becoming more and more like Jesus by exercising patience and forgiveness in response to personality conflicts and frustrations and irritations and misunderstandings and imperfect leadership and imperfect followership. Koinonia requires covering over a multitude 
of sins with love all the time. And so what about you? Are you investing in the communion of saints? More than just on Sunday. Are you devoted to biblical koinonia? Is there time in your schedule for it? To love and to serve others? Do you know the needs of the brethren? Your brothers and sisters sitting next to you and behind you and in front of you. Do you know who among us is needy? Do you know who among us is lonely? Do you know your own neediness? Do you realize how dependent you are on the body of Christ? Are you a community builder or a community destroyer? How do you respond to criticism? Do you welcome it or do you never really receive any because everyone knows you can't handle it? How do you give criticism? Do your words tend to build up or tear down? Biblical fellowship is the church's common life with God and the church's common life with one another. Spirit-filled churches are filled with spirit-filled Christians who are devoted to building the church's common life together in Christ. Number three, a spirit-filled church is devoted to worship. The end of verse 42 says that the Jerusalem church was devoted to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. I draw your attention to the word the. The Greek literally says that these Christians were devoted to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. That's why I emphasized the word the in your outline and the handout there. That's an important, those are two important these. The text is referring to something specific in each case. This is not just the ordinary breaking of bread that people do in their homes. Though that, it flows from it. The ordinary breaking of bread flows from the special breaking of bread. And sometimes, especially in the early church, they happened at the same time, at the same table maybe even. But it's the breaking of bread that Jesus commanded his church to do that's being talked about here. That he commanded us to do when we gather together for worship, especially worship on the Lord's day. That's what Acts 20 verse 7 means when it says that on the first day of the week, on Sunday, the disciples came together for the purpose of breaking bread. Of course, they can break bread in their homes throughout the week, but special kind of breaking of bread happened on the Lord's day. The first day of the week is when they came together for worship and Bible instruction. And when they came together for the Lord's day, they broke bread. And when available, they had wine. We see in the rest of the passage and the rest of Acts that the breaking of bread at the Lord's table led to this breaking of bread in their homes. And that's how it should work today. Our table fellowship at God's table should flow out into table fellowship in our homes. The prayers here, the prayers, 
were the set prayers or the common prayers, the koinonia prayers that the church prayed when they came for worship. This is not just general prayer, though those may have been added to the prayers on top of the prayers. But it's referring to specific prayers, formal prayers. The core of the prayers was, of course, the book of Psalms. And we see that just a couple chapters later in Acts 4, verses 23 to 31, where they're praying together a psalm. The breaking of bread and the prayers went together. The heart of worship for these early Christians included both the Lord's Supper and some kind of liturgy. Breaking of bread and the prayers as well as the preaching of the word, which was always with it. This is what makes up biblical worship. The prayers, the breaking of bread, and the proclamation of the apostolic teaching. This is what the Spirit-filled church in the New Testament devoted itself to. This is what Spirit-filled believers do. They were devoted to assembling together for worship. Now, I need to ask us, some of you, some hard questions at this point. And I'm going to close with this. I'm going to be speaking the truth in love here. Hopefully in love. That's my intent. Are you devoted to the assembling together of the saints every Sunday? Is worship on the first day of the week at the top of your weekly priority list? Or is the worship service on Sunday something that you can do without from time to time as things come up? In recent times, the enemy has successfully convinced many Christians that joining the assembly on Sundays is a good idea, but ultimately It's optional. It's something we should do maybe most of the time, even, but not necessarily every single Sunday. Is that the way the early church thought? Is that how spirit-filled Christians think? Is that the thought process that flows out of spirit-filled believers? Many congregations, to give us some perspective here, many congregations during the early church met before the sun came up on Sundays because their employers and their masters required them to work on Sundays. When you read the book of Acts and then especially in church histories, you read church history in the early church, you get the idea that going to church was the very last thing Most of them, many of them, were willing to give up in their weekly schedule. It was the most important event of the week. Not going to church for a week would have been like not eating for a week. They hungered and they thirsted. They thirst for righteousness. In fact, they weren't satisfied with meeting just on Sundays. They wanted more. They had the sense that they needed more. 
than just spending Sundays together. They never would have missed worship because there was some other event going on at the same time. They did not forsake the assembling together because they were too tired or because they had a long week. For many devoted Christians throughout church history, they were always tired and every week was a seven-day work week. Now, I understand that sometimes work schedules and emergencies legitimately prevent some people from attending church sometimes. But this should be rare. It should not be normal, regular, multiple times per year. And it should be avoided when possible. In those situations where it seems to be unavoidable, it's important to make sure that we are not accepting defeat too easily. It should take a lot, a whole lot, to keep us from church. Here's my encouragement to you. If you're still the kind of Christian who decides every Saturday night or Sunday morning whether you're going to attend church, I want to encourage you to stop making that decision every week. You should not be deciding every once a week whether or not you're going to attend church that week. Deciding to go to church is something that you decide one time. It's not a weekly decision. It's a one-time decision. You decide one time in your life that every time Sunday rolls around, you are going to be in the house of the Lord, worshiping God with His people. Once you make that one-time decision, you don't ever have to think about it again. It never enters your mind again. If you keep making that decision once a week, there will inevitably be weeks where you make the wrong decision. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, I know some of you have made that one-time decision. I can see it. It's obvious. You're the ones who are at church about 51 or 52 weeks out of the year. That's possible. It happens. It happens here. Unless you or your child is severely sick, fever, you're at church. When you're on vacation, you find a church to attend. The Spirit in you drives you to meet with God's people on the Lord's day. Others of you are still making that decision every week. That's also clear. Every Saturday night or Sunday morning, you decide whether or not you're going to go to church. So I exhort you, I encourage you, I challenge you in love to stop making that decision every week. Make the decision once. Make it right now if you haven't made that decision to attend church every Lord's Day. Parents, this is one of the most important things you can do in the discipleship of your children. It's one of the most important things my parents did for me when they became believers when I was nine years old. Unless church was canceled for weather, we were there. I can't even remember situations 
in which we didn't go. It took so much. It may have happened. I just don't remember. When we were on vacation, we found somewhere to worship. I remember a small church in the hills of Tennessee that we attended on one vacation. You need to be at church both because you need us and because we need you. When you're not here, something is missing. The body is missing one of its parts when you're not here. And the reason we all need to be at church is that we all need what God gives us here during this special time, this this special assembly. We need to hear over and over the apostolic teaching in the company of the brethren. We need the fellowship that begins here on Sunday but then flows out to the other six days. We need the breaking of bread at the Lord's table. We need the prayers. We need to say them together. We need to hear one another saying them and singing them to us as we sing them to God and to one another. Coming to church, coming here, doing what we're doing right now, doing what you're doing right now puts you in the path of God. It puts you in the path of God and His grace and His blessings. Sunday worship is a means of grace. The central one that you cannot get except with the gathered assembly on Sunday. You can't substitute it with private devotions in your bedroom. You can't substitute it with family worship at home on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. And so decide today, decide for the last time to make church a priority. Let's pray and ask for God's help and his grace in doing this. Father, thank you for your word, which is living and active, which cuts to our hearts. Help us to not just be hearers of it, but to be doers of it today and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.